If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 6, uh, 19 to 24, and we are going to be looking at the passage that was just read to you. It's interesting to note that in many Christian traditions, the time leading up to Christmas Day is a time of reflection. It's a time of sober reflection. And then on Christmas Day begins 12 days of Christmas, so to speak, 12 days of celebration. And that's not how I grew up. I grew up in a, my tradition in my, in my home growing up was uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas Day was massive celebration. And then after Christmas was the recovery of the celebration. But I remember vividly, uh, I did spend one Christmas Eve in deep reflection of my life. Uh, I was fairly young at the time. I had an uncle who was uh, a number of years older than me, and he proceeded to tell me the night before Christmas when we we're going to open up our presents, and he proceeded to tell me that he didn't think I was going to get any presents this year because I hadn't been very good. And I appealed to him. I said, no, I think I've been pretty good. He says, nope, you got nothing under that tree. And that began a very long night for me, thinking maybe, I, well, I guess I haven't been too good. I remember praying to God that he would forgive me of all the sins for the past year, that at least I would have one present the next morning. I thought deeply about my own failures, about my own sinfulness, my own rebellion. What's interesting about the text that we're looking at this morning is I think it calls for sober reflection. I think the words of Jesus this morning are going to call us to think deeply about our lives and where we actually are spiritually. And I think it's appropriate as we anticipate Christmas to, to do this kind of work. It kind of fits in with last week when we looked at the text on fasting, that fasting is oftentimes a way of, of dispensing with the good gift of God's food in order to spend time alone with God and, and seeking Him and His kingdom and His purposes and how we can connect with those purposes. So this morning, uh, again, I'm not trying to cancel Christmas, of course, but I do think these verses would, would work very, very well with a time of fasting from last week, but also a time of sober reflection as we anticipate our hope in Jesus as we celebrate Him on Christmas Day. Jesus is going to lay down three basic principles. I'm going to take those principles and turn them into a question to help us reflect deeply on where we are spiritually. So question number one, where is your treasure? I'm talking about today, this morning. Where is your treasure? Let's look at the text. Uh, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus has these equal and opposite uh, sort of uh, prohibition, but then also a, a positive statement. He's saying, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Don't focus your attention completely and exclusively on what, on what the earth would offer you. And he says it, it's, it's, not, it's not worth it because moth 
and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. He's, he's essentially saying is if you orient your life around the things of this world, the things that you can see, those things aren't going to last. Those things are temporary. Those things can be easily taken away. But then positively he says, you need to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, you need to live and act and, and, and be and do things that contribute ultimately to what, what heaven is going to be like. You have to have an eye on the future. You need to be thinking about how to invest in eternal things, things that, that last forever, things that the world can't take away. And then in verse 21, he lays down the principle for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a profound statement of Jesus. He's saying that whatever you treasure functionally, whatever you value functionally, that's where your heart is going to be. Okay? It's just going to happen. That's the way it is. And so the question is, where is your treasure really? What do you really value? Really? I know it's easy on Sunday morning. I, I think we all, you all seem to say the right things, right? I, I just heard you recite the Nicene Creed. That was, that was great. All right. It seemed like everybody was speaking. We're singing the right songs, I think. We're, we're singing about Jesus is, is everything. He's the only thing. He's, he's, he's our priceless treasure, the choir told us. So I think we get it right one hour a week. But I think if we're honest, what, what happens tomorrow morning through Saturday? Where is your treasure really? Now, I'm going to give you three ways to try to help you see where your treasure is. The first way you could determine where your treasure is, it kind of connects closely to the text, is what does your financial situation look like? In other words, I think if we looked at how we spent our money, and again, I'm not talking about, I mean, we all have expenses, right? We have to spend money for our house, and we have to spend money for our kids, and food. If you have teenage kids, it means you probably don't have any money left after the food budget. You know, all of those things, but what about that discretionary income? Where that money goes would tell you a lot about what you really value. It just does. Randy Alcorn, who writes on these topics, uh, will, will say this, is how can we recognize if we're falling into materialism's trap? Christ's words were direct and profound. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What we do with our possessions is a sure indicator of what's in our hearts. Jesus is saying, show me your checkbook. That's kind of old school. Show you your financial statement. It's an indicator of what's in our hearts. Your credit card statement, your receipts for cash expenditures, and I'll show you where your heart is. What we do with our money doesn't lie. It is a bold statement to God of what we truly value. Well, there's one way to kind of answer the question, where is your treasure really? 
I think there's another way to do that, and that's how you use your time. Now, a lot of us, you know, our time, a lot of our time is taken up with necessary things, right? You should be sleeping, probably more than you are. But you sleep, you eat, you go to work, you take care of kids, you've got academic work, you've got sports practices, etc., music, all of those are baked in. But what do you do with the time that's somewhat discretionary? When you have that kind of time, time that you can spend it in any way, what do you do with it? Where does it go? What do you think about when you have time? that's left to your own discretion. That would also, I think, indicate where your treasure truly is. I think there's an emotional sort of a test that you could uh, bring to uh, the, the equation, so to speak, and that is emotionally. What do you need to be content? What do you need to have joy? What do you need to have hope? What pursuit or something that happens or whatever it is, whatever sort of buoys your hopes or can destroy your hope if you don't get it is an indication of where your treasure really is. These are the hard questions I think Jesus wants us to ask about ourselves. Where is your treasure truly? Fully. It's interesting, um, living in, in, in Princeton, I think we think a lot about our lives in terms of how we perform, how we get things done, all right? It almost feels like, you know, I'm, not, I'm sure there's materialism in our area, and certainly there are wealthy people, and, and there are not so wealthy people who make money, that, that, that their God, their treasure. But I think sometimes for us, it's, it's, it's like how many people can fill their schedule the fullest? That's the person who wins. We love to do this. In our church, the only sin that you would be applauded for is workaholism. I'm overscheduled. Yay. Me too. But it's interesting in the, the Sermon on the Mount... <laughs> A lot of the Sermon on the Mount, yes, it does call us to do things, but it calls us to our identity first and foremost. It calls us uh, to, 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 to look at who we are because of the gospel first and foremost as the basis for how we perform. I'll say a little bit more about this in a moment. My fear for us is that in our busyness, in our overscheduled, high-paced, high-octane lives, we spend precious little time actually asking and answering the question, who and where and what is truly our treasure? What is guiding our hearts? It's interesting. Um, Get another quote from Randy Al Alcorn. You know, we, we, you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and we just a couple weeks ago talked about praying in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, of praying for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This, this future look of, of longing for that kingdom to come. And he says this, he goes, nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven, for that new kingdom that's coming. 
We think that what we want is sex or drugs or alcohol or a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy us. Where's your treasure, really? It's interesting, uh, as well, as when you, when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm just going to point to two passages. If you go back to Matthew 5, verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You can't get into the kingdom unless you hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Christ, right? And receive that righteousness by grace. But there's a sense that once we're in the kingdom, that this, this should characterize who we are, what we are. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Knowing that only in Christ can we be satisfied. I think a good question for us is, are we building time into our life? Are we even thinking about how do I live that out with the limited time I have, that disposable time? How am I living that out? There's another arresting part. It's all arresting, by the way, uh, and convicting. But Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. This idea that this is part of our identity as believers, part of being in the kingdom means that wherever we go, we will make an impact. We will have influence when we're in contact with those around us who may not know Christ. I think Jesus would clearly say this is investing in heaven. This is investing in the next life, of spending time with those who don't know the Lord and making a difference by making an impact, by being prepared in terms of connecting with them, being ready to live out the gospel, but share the words of the gospel as we're able. How much of that characterizes us? Where is your treasure? Really? Back to the text, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. In verse 22, we get the second principle and the second question. How is your spiritual vision? The text reads, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, what Jesus is saying is when your vision is good, when you can see clearly, when you have no impediments in your eyesight, your body is filled with light. You can see. You, 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 you live with a clear vision. You can, you can see what's happening around you. But in verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, when you have trouble with your eyesight, any of you who've ever struggled with, with, with a vision issue... Um, I know some of my kids, I don't know how this happened with my kids, but they were constantly scratching their cornea. On, I don't know, sometimes they were fighting with, you know, wooden swords. Sometimes they were running out in the woods, and they got these scratched cornea. It was so painful, and they just couldn't see, and their whole world began to shrink. Why? They couldn't see. Their life was sort of dark and, 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 and gray because they couldn't see properly because their vision was impaired. I remember... This is when Denise realized she had a lot more work cut out for 
her in our marriage. This was early in our marriage, and I, I couldn't see. I woke up, I, and I got ready, and I couldn't see. I, I mean, I was just, I was in lots of pain in my eye. I couldn't see anything. And I walked around for hours just not understanding what in the world was wrong until I realized I had put two contacts in the same eye. Not good. Not good. I think what Jesus is saying here is, how is your spiritual vision? Are you seeing things clearly? In other words, one of the things that, that, that messes us up and where we embrace the world and we embrace investing in, in things that are going to not last instead of investing in, in, in things that will last forever is because we don't see clearly. Spiritually, our vision has been compromised. Again, you could take the whole Sermon on the Mount to kind of clear up your vision, so to speak. I'm going to point to uh, a verse, one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 4. Excuse me, 5, verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying here is the only way to get into the kingdom is you have to be poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? It means you know I don't have anything to offer to God. I have no ability to earn God's love because I am an unrighteous person. I am helpless and I am hopeless before God. That's what it means to get into the kingdom. But once you're in the kingdom, that attitude needs to continue to pervade your life. And I think one of the temptations we will have at this Christmas season is one of the reasons we will not embrace Christ and all of his glory at Christmas is we've forgotten that we're poor in spirit. And that's part of our identity. Even now, having received that gift, we're helpless and hopeless. If Jesus Christ wasn't born in that manger, none of us would be able to get right with God. If you don't see your helplessness and hopelessness before this God who then provides a way out, you won't see clearly. Go back to Matthew 6. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The Lord's Prayer, when he teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6.10, our Father, or 6.9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, God's purpose is to make sure that his name is honored everywhere. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the first part of praying is praying for what? God's agenda. To orient our lives around what he's trying to do. Hallowing his name. His future kingdom that's coming. His rule and reign that needs to be experienced by more people. And in our lives. And seeing God's will be done on earth as, as it is done in heaven. I think the question is... is is that the spiritual vision that we have? It's interesting when you think about what, what, what Jesus is asking us to do is to get our eyes off of building our life around the things that we can see on this earth and, and build our, put our treasure there rather than in the eternal future kingdom following his kingdom strategy. When you think about it this way, again, applied to money, but you can apply it in all kinds of ways. When Jesus warns us not to store up treasures on earth, it's not just because wealth might be lost, okay? It's because wealth will always be lost. 
Either it leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die. There are no exceptions. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect our investment strategy. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong. It's just plain stupid. It's Randy Alcorn again. But I think the problem we have is that our spiritual vision is compromised. We are not taking enough time in our personal lives. We are not letting what happens on Sunday morning guide our thinking, guide our vision to Jesus plus nothing. Let's get to the last question, verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The last question to ask yourself in reflection, sort of Christmas reflection, is who is really ordering your life right now? Who is it? Is it God, his kingdom, Jesus? Or are you following another master? It's interesting, Jesus says you can't serve both, right? You're either going to be serving God or, or you're going to be serving money or you're going to be serving God or by extension some other pursuit. It's either God or, or something else. There's no way to, 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 to marry the two, so to speak. There's no way to sort of have the best of both worlds, so to speak. And yet I think we try to do that, don't we? As a young boy sitting in that room with my uncle, asking God to forgive my sins so I could have presence, I, I, I was reflecting a little bit on my life, but, but I wasn't uh, letting God order me. I was trying to get God to, to bless my earthly idolatry. Right? And I think that's what a lot of us do. We, 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 it's hard for us to get to the point where, where we, we love God plus nothing or, or we find joy in God plus nothing or we find a peace in God plus nothing or we find a satisfaction in God plus nothing. We are always often trying to get God to bless our earthly investment strategy. Make my career work. Make my academic life work. Help me in this athletic achievement. Help me in this musical achievement. Help me to find a, a, a significant other. Help me with these children you've given me, but, but help them to, to, to live better. And, and we're constantly trying to get God to bless the earthly thing rather than looking to God and his purposes and his kingdom and investing fully in him plus nothing. I think what's hard is in the earthly arena, I think the results are more tangible, right? I mean, if you work in a company, and I assume your company is trying to make money, if it's not trying to make money, well, you won't be there long, okay? But if you're trying to make money, you, there's a balance sheet at the end of the year. There, there, you can see how well you did. It's measurable. If you're in music, you, you can tell, are, are you doing well? Are you winning competitions? Are you progressing? You can, in your academic world, you know if you passed your generals or not. You know if you, you, you're going to get the PhD or not. Sometimes the spiritual investment you simply do 
and be faithful to God. And since it's an investment in the future, you may not know until you get to the future what it really did. And I think we're all too often traded something that's tangible and we can see and taste and measure rather than to look at the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and do the things, live out the identity we have there and progress. One of my favorite stories is um, there was a guy in Sydney, Australia, and he was, um, he, he wanted to be salt and light, and he, he used to go out on George Street and ask people one question. He would jump out, this is a couple decades ago, he would jump out to these people and he would say, are you going to heaven or to hell? And then have a little word about Jesus, had a tract. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to say that that's what you should do. Although, if you're on Nassau Street and you do that, I, depending on how it's going, I might act like I know you, I might not. Case by case basis. But this man, this is his way of sharing the gospel, right? He would go out and share with 10 people per day was his goal. He did this for a couple decades. He rarely knew of anybody who responded. And one day there was this pastor in England who heard about this story and just shared it. And all of a sudden someone in his church came up and says, I met that guy. He came out and he really annoyed me with that question. But I went home and thought about it. And then I found a couple of Christians and I put my faith in Christ. But it started with that guy on George Street. And then this pastor went to uh, uh, some other gathering in, in, in India and shared that story again. And two people said, yes, I, I was visiting Australia. I was on George Street. That guy came. I hated that guy. But later I, I thought about it. I ran into some other Christian. Anyway, this pastor ended up running into dozens of stories like this all around the world and actually came back to Sydney and met this man who was now up in years, unable to go out anymore, and just said, listen, I've heard dozens and dozens of reports of your little question annoyed people, but it was the beginning of them coming to faith in Christ, and he didn't know about any of them. I think when the Sermon on the Mount says, forgive people, when it says, deal with your anger, when the Sermon on the Mount talks about living in light of your poor in spirit, you need to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's part of your identity, but part of how you live out that identity. When, when the Sermon on the Mount talks about, you know, pursuing purity, when the Sermon on the Mount t t talks about um, all of these different things that we're supposed to live out of this new identity, I think we vastly underestimate that focusing on these priorities, even prayer itself, I think we vastly underestimate what God can do with that. Because we're not investing in this world. We're investing in the next. And it might take you till you get to the next world to find out what your investment did. So I'm going to encourage you to take these three questions. Where is your treasure, really? How is your spiritual vision? And who is really ordering your life? And let the Holy Spirit guide and direct you and change you and redirect you so that you can live a life 
for those of us who know Christ, live a life that has eternal impact. Not simply in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know you shared these thoughts with us because you knew that we would struggle. We would struggle in where we put our treasure. We would struggle with spiritual vision, seeing things clearly. We would struggle to let you direct our lives every minute of every day. I pray by your spirit that you would gently and powerfully redirect us so that we can make the kind of investment of our time, our money, our energy, our focus. Make investments that are not simply about this world. Make investments that will have eternal value. And Lord, if we don't see the results of those investments initially, Lord, I pray that we would look to the future and realize that it may take getting to the other side to see what you actually did as we tried to faithfully serve you. I pray this in your name. Amen.